Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 42 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined alongside Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Dolores Zano. It's Mother's Day here in the We Dessert Studio, and we've got a packed show for you today. We've got Jim Bordell from Team Rubicon, who's going to uh, explain how you can help contribute to flood relief here in Houston. Also, we've got a great interview with Dylan Bedore, who's going to talk politics with us as uh, the Republicans and Democrats essentially have their nominations in tow. And also, we'll have a great interview with Jake Kaplan, who's going to discuss the ailing Houston Astros and what can be done to salvage their season. But... Guys, it's been a it's been a pretty adventurous week. Starting off with uh, me dominating all of you in bowling, but I'm just curious. Outside of that, how's the week been? Well, that was embarrassing. Uh, I was not satisfied with my performance, and so I'm actually going to go bowl without you guys uh, several times before we do it again, so that I can come back and trump you. But excellent work over there at Lucky Strike. Uh, it's a really fine upscale bowling venue uh above house of blues or right next to house of blues and we certainly enjoyed our time there and uh, enjoyed meeting jim paez the general manager uh fun time to be had by all and you should certainly check out lucky strike if you're looking for a place to bowl sometime uh but not only that we also went thursday to the nightingale room one of our favorite venues in houston and saw one of our favorite bands uh second lovers obviously tom and nick have been on this show before and joining them uh was dylan eyes and uh sorry daniel eyes and dylan shepherd from daniel eyes and the vibes uh who were on the show last week and that was uh it was a really good time ran into my sister there randomly uh apparently she does things in houston hardly ever serious that was that was interesting but uh had a good time there yeah, it was great to see you be social this week you know uh congratulations on that it required so much effort honestly i'm still exhausted from it uh that's about all the social i can do this month i think okay well we'll we'll check back into you in uh june but uh jeremy how's it going for you it was great um looking at the bowling tally i think you missed your calling in life especially in that last round there um, I think me and Kevin and my girlfriend were on like a three-way tie or something, so I'm pretty embarrassed by that. I need to also get a little bit of practice in before we bowl again. Um, other than that, it was a great week. Um, have Game of Thrones looking forward to tonight. And of course, if you guys don't know, today is Mother's Day, and I uh, will be going by We Desserts to get something for my dear mother uh, for putting up with me all these years. And um, probably going to try the chocolate chip cookies, but I hear that they have something else this week uh, that they'd like to tell our listeners about. Well, the chocolate toffee cookies are what uh, people have basically been going into we having a cookie, walking out, and then coming back five or ten minutes later and telling Penny and Jen that this cookie changed their lives. It, it is a game changer. So the chocolate toffee cookie you cannot go wrong with, but you got to get there early because they do sell out of those things. They're so delicious. It's it's a one-of-a-kind treat like, such as you've never had. I don't know why you guys are looking at me like that. It's, it's really that good. I don't know if you've had it yet. But uh, Austin and I this week went by and got something for our mothers already so you're way late to this game jpax uh, austin you got a strawberry shortcake for your mother i believe yeah so friday I actually went by we desserts picked up a amazing cake took it over to my uh, parents house yesterday and it was absolutely phenomenal it was uh, beautifully decorated uh, penny did a phenomenal job with it so i highly recommend you know whether it's mother's day anniversary or just a friday afternoon go buy we desserts get a cake penny will do an outstanding job we should uh, post some pictures of these cakes because they're beautiful. They got flowers on them, which are not edible. I learned too late. And um, chocolate cake with a coconut marshmallow for my mother. I think she's going to love it. Have not given it to her yet. But if you're ever looking for a cake for a birthday or a special occasion, let's say you've messed up and you've done done your lover wrong, right? You need to get back in their good graces. Then certainly uh, cakes are a great way to do that. Any kind of dessert you want can be special ordered from uh, Penny and Jen at We Desserts. And as a listener to the podcast, you get 10% off. And also, you guys may have recalled, if you've been a long-time listener of the show that I beg for reviews routinely because we need them. They're very important to the show's growth. And uh, so I have sat down with Penny from We Desserts and shown her exactly how on a mobile device you can review the podcast. And they have agreed at uh, We Desserts uh, at 3411 Kirby that if you come in and you do an iTunes review for the podcast in front of them, you'll get a free macaroon or a free cookie, uh, one of the smaller items of your choice, in addition to a 10% off um, of whatever you end up ordering altogether. So if you want uh, to go by we desserts you can certainly get a little extra this week by leaving a review while you're there that's a great deal so definitely stop by 3411 kirby here in houston tell penny and jen that the guys and the finesse queen at the weekly brew sent you by and speaking of the finesse queen you were up in waco texas for a track and field state championship tell us how it went it went really well it was really nice to see coach harbor out at a baylor university and it was nice to see all my friends at baylor my girls did um 
well um um well they they improved there i have a really young team so i'm really proud of them um and it's great that they were able to make it to state this year i haven't made it to we desserts but after the astros game today i'm gonna stop by there and get a cake for my mother um but other than that my week's been great just state and astros games all week it's always a good week when you go to several astros games i might say but uh you know there was another big sporting event this week, and that was the Kentucky Derby. Did any of you watch that by chance? Now, if you've never read, um, there is a really uh, funny article. Um, what is it? Why am I blanking on the guy's name? Hunter S. Thompson wrote uh, an article about the Kentucky Derby, one of his more famous ones. I believe it was in Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, I think it's called the Kentucky Derby is Depraved and Dangerous or something like that. And it is one of the better pieces of sports writing that I've ever read in my life. Everybody should go and read that if you haven't. It's a great example of, uh, of Thompson's work. Yeah, so Kentucky Derby this past week, uh, it was, you know, I, I believe, uh, I, I couldn't even tell you the horse that won. Uh, that, that's how little I follow it. But I did see an article uh, that kind of struck my attention. It draws me back to a conversation that we had with a band called Race to the Moon here during the fall. And we had asked them, how did they come up with their name for the band? And they said that they went through like a thoroughbred directory and essentially found horses' names and decided to use that as their own it was Jake Helstrom, I believe. there was an article this week posted in uh, postgrad problems with 15 questions and it asked to identify whether or not this name was a hipster band or Kentucky Derby horse well, what exactly is a hipster band in this context it's a kind of a vague term what, what do you mean by hipster band you know something that you would see at a coffee shop or just you know a, a band that actually has an album that you know might have like a small cult following oh you guys probably haven't heard of them before like that kind of band. All right, so let's go ahead and get started uh, real quick. And I just want to test y'all's knowledge. Uh, first question, Leobon. Is that a hipster band or Kentucky Derby horse? Can, can we get a spelling of it? This is like, I, I was actually a very good speller when I was young. I won several spelling bees uh, at an early age, advanced to regionals. Yeah, I lost to an Asian girl in, uh, in the Texas State Finals. That's uh, kind of stuck with me the rest of my life. But um, so can we get a spelling of this band name? Sure. It is L-A-O-B-A-N. Is that a derby horse or a hipster band? That's definitely a hipster band. I'm going with the derby horse. Correct, is actually a derby horse. Ah, yeah. Well done, Jeremy. No idea. All right. Here's the next one. Domo Genesis. That sounds like a hipster band to me. That sounds like a hipster band and uh, a blend of illicit an illicit substance, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, I was thinking like Domo Arigato Mr. Roboto, right? Like uh... Exactly. So you guys both would be right. It is a hipster band. I can't talk about the illegal narcotics. I don't know that information. All right. The next one, Cherry Wine. And Dolores, feel free to jump in here if you'd like. I'm going to say horse. That's a Kentucky Derby horse. Yeah, I'm going with horse. I'll go with horse. You guys are all correct. We're awesome at this. See, you're trying to stump us, and you're not doing a very good job. We're terrific. All right. Next question, Caveman. Just Caveman? That's a terrible name for either a band or a horse, but I'm going to say Caveman. I'm going to ah. I'm gonna go with band. A derby horse. Yeah. Jeremy, you are killing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Redeeming yourself yeah. for that quiz we did a couple weeks ago. Jeremy is obviously a fan of hipster bands. <laughs> He's like, I've seen them at concert. You know, they were totally playing at ACL this past week. And you guys never heard of them. <laughs> I've never heard of any of these. Bombino. Bombino. Is that a hipster band or Kentucky Derby horse? Hipster band. Derby horse. I'm going to go with the hipster band. And the correct answer? It's hipster band. Yeah. Oh, All right. That's one of us. Now, Dolores, I'm uncomfortable with how close you are to Austin's screen. Because you've been right since you started jumping in here. And you really... No, nah, don't look at it, though. See, that's what I'm saying. The answers aren't there until you... It's true. Okay. I have to click ahead. Well, see, I'm not cheating, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> All right, next one. Trojan Nation. Is that a hipster band or Kentucky Derby horse? Band. I'm going to say horse. Go with band. And the correct answer, horse. Yeah! All right. I think I, think I caught up now. I think, actually, I'm caught up to Jeremy. I'd just like to point out how I'm deducing these. I ask the right questions, probing for information, and then I nail it. I'm really killing it. All right, asleep at the wheel. That's a band. If that's a horse, that's a terrible name for a horse. And they don't have wheels. Horses have manes. I'll say a band as well. Yeah, I actually heard of the band, but I have heard of that band too. I did want to give away that I was cheating there and had heard of that band, but I had. I think my ego has almost recovered since bowling with you, Austin. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last question for you. Blue Healer, is that a hipster band or a derby horse? I'm going to say horse. That sounds like a horse to me. Yeah, it's a horse. Horse. 
It's actually a band, so you guys wow. all ended on a poor note. I'll just cut that last part. But, you know, anyways, if uh, you like our work and you want to follow us on social media, uh, we actually had a lot of people follow us this week on both Facebook and Twitter. So you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find all of our work on weeklybrewcast.com. But we've got a packed show on deck. Again, we have an interview with Jim Bordell from Team Rubicon, Dylan Bador, the political reporter for the Houston Chronicle, and Jake Kaplan, who is the beat reporter for the Houston Astros. So again, we've got a packed show on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. This past week, Donald Trump became the presumptive Republican nominee for the White House as he won convincingly in Indiana, which was shortly followed by Ted Cruz and John Kasich suspending their campaigns. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders pulled off another upset on Hillary Clinton, but still falls mathematically short in the delegate count and must now turn his focus to superdelegates. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew Podcast to discuss this and more is Dylan Bedore, political reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, Dylan, thanks for joining us this week. And as it stands right now, what do you make of this election season? Well, this election season has definitely been crazy and unprecedented uh, on a number of fronts, you know, starting with the fact that the primary election started earlier than any in, uh, you know, modern memory. Uh, going all the way up to the fact that Donald Trump has now essentially claimed the nomination. And, uh, you know, in recent days, you've seen Republican leaders backing away from from uh, giving their support to Trump, which kind of culminated in Paul Ryan um, on Thursday. Uh, it, it just kind of all wraps up to, to make this one real wild season. And on both sides, uh, Republican and Democrat, we should say. Kind of on that topic, uh, with Republican leaders like Paul Ryan not ready, quote, not ready to back Trump, um, tactically speaking, what must he do to unify the party if that is all possible at this point? Well, that's a big question as to whether or not Trump is actually, you know, trying to unify the party here, because as he repeated many times during the primary campaign, he has brought a lot of outside voters to the Republican Party, uh, folks who either have not typically turned out for elections or who have not typically been Republican. Uh, So Trump actually faces, you know, two distinct possibilities in front of him, which is to unify the typical, you know, Republicans uh, under his candidacy And that option is not looking that promising because you have Republican leaders uh, who are, you know, distancing themselves from him. Uh, It doesn't seem likely that Ted Cruz will come out and ask his former supporters to support Donald Trump. So there's a challenge there. And then the other option that faces Trump is just to, you know, turn the Republican Party into his own machine, uh, fueled mostly by these new voters um, that he's bringing out. Uh, we will have to wait and see which route he follows. Who are these new voters that he's bringing out? Because you hear a lot in the media, and of course we are media, about this uh, Trump support base and, and the sort of things that motivate them, and also Trump's ability to um, to play with them in terms of rhetoric. I mean, who are these new group of voters that have not been Republicans but are now sort of on Trump's side? Previous reporting about these voters makes one thing clear, that they don't fit any standard demographic. Uh, they are largely white and middle-aged or older. Um, But as far as the income spectrum, you know, publications like the New York Times that have sought to understand this find them kind of all over the map. Um, It's understood that they are people who have typically not been active in politics because of a kind of apathy uh, that they cite, um, but have been moved in recent years by their sense of uh, falling economic prosperity, um, you know, both in the country and in their own households. Um, And Trump has brought to them a message in a kind of way that seems to inspire people, uh, seems to excite them. They think that this is a guy who's going to get things done. And uh, they're, they're turning out and they're not, it's very clear, they're not voting for the Republican Party. They're voting for Donald Trump. And speaking of getting things done, Donald Trump has stated this past week that he doesn't want to be like President Obama and sign executive orders were he to win the presidential nomination. And with that being said, he stated several times that he wants an experienced politician, somebody that has great relations with Congress and the Senate, to be his vice presidential candidate. Who do you see as, you know, kind of the front runners at this point? 
for somebody that would take that veep position in a potential Trump administration? I don't think there's any solid indicator at this point of who that person could be. There's been a lot of speculation. Um, you know, lots of folks have said Ben Carson or Chris Christie, both of them have kind of taken their name out of the hat informally. Rick Perry, um, you know, stepped up, I think, just on Thursday, and he said he would be open to taking that position, not that it had been offered to him. But um, I would think that Trump's vice presidential nominee is going to be someone who we are not that familiar with when it comes out. Uh, and, and I don't say that with total certainty, but that's that's a feeling that I have. Um, you know, Ben Carson also the other day said that the vice presidential nominee for the Trump campaign may be a Democrat or someone with strong Democratic leanings, uh, which would be an obvious, you know, move to posture for wider appeal in the primary election. It's hard to say to what extent Carson is just kind of speaking his thoughts as they come to him or whether that came out of a conversation with the Trump campaign, but, you know, that's on the radio, on the radar and Carson is, I believe, a surrogate. So we're going to have to see, really. The guesses are all over the map. You covered the Ted Cruz campaign for the Chronicle. Uh, despite the long messiness of the campaign uh, between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, do you expect a Cruz endorsement at some point? And what effect do you think that that would have in shoring up support for Trump? I would be really surprised if Ted Cruz came out to endorse Donald Trump. Um, you know, he and Trump had this real interesting relationship back in the very early days of the race you know in july actually rick perry was the one who emerged as the big anti-trump and ted cruz was kind of snuggling up trying mm -hmm. to keep the peace there now fast forward to the end of the election and you know cruz repeatedly refused to answer questions about whether or not he could get behind trump uh he would only ever insist that he was going to beat trump which did not turn out to be true uh, in in the fiery, very final hours of his campaign, he kind of unloaded on Trump, uh, calling him, you know, utterly amoral, a pathological liar, and all sorts of stuff like that. He also said, if Trump wins, we lose the country. So it would be hard for him to come back and say, we got to vote for Trump without kind of compromising his, his whole image as this firebrand ideological conservative. I would expect... We are not going to hear that much comment from Cruz on the presidential race, but uh, I think he's going to lay low for a while. Here's one thing I'm curious about was the uh, attachment of Carly Fiorina as a presumptive vice presidential candidate for a guy who is still not even within shouting distance of winning the nomination uh, from the party. What, what was what was motivating that move? And what is I mean, that seems unprecedented as far as I can remember declaring a vice presidential candidate that early. And then what was her benefit in that? It's just I'm mystified by all of it. You're correct. That was unprecedented. Um, as far as we understand it, it was mostly a tactic to grab media attention um, because that actually happened the day after Trump won majorities in six northeastern states, which was just a resounding victory. Real big blow to Cruz. Uh, so Cruz came out the next morning and he teased on CNN that he would be making a major announcement later that day, which of course took all the media attention to, you know, spend the day kind of frantically talking about what's this major announcement going to be, and people kind of got got the hang of it, um, and then he made the announcement, and the news came out, and he did indeed land himself prominently on all the evening news, but the very next day, actually, we had reports of John Boehner calling Cruz Lucifer in the flesh at Stanford <laughs> University, and Carly Fiorina was just kicked out of the conversation. The media instantly turned their attention to, um, you know, that little that great little quote right there and and uh yeah the the vice presidential announcement did not actually turn out generating as much uh, attention for Cruz as he hoped it would and in fact most people were left with the reaction similar to you what you described as just kind of confusion 
why he did that. Well, and now Ted Cruz has to go back and, and play nice with the Senate, which you know he sort of branded himself as an outsider and and criticized Washington insiders and the elitism and the and the cabal nature of Washington. So I mean, what does Ted Cruz do from here? Is he does he still have presidential ambitions? What is his career track from here on out, having failed to win the nomination? Well, he definitely still has presidential ambitions. Um, you know, digging up his his past here in Houston because he did he he did grow up in Houston. I found this uh, document he had written at the end of high school where he explained his ambitions to go to Princeton and then Harvard and then private practice and then gain experience in elected office so he could, you know, work up a track record and uh, a profile enough to run for president. And he actually did that exactly. Uh, Princeton, Harvard, private practice, elected office, run for president. Uh, So if he wrote that when he was 17, it's not likely now that he's given up on this. Uh, He's pretty much been working his whole career with the presidency in mind. So he will definitely be back. But uh, you are correct to point out that he's going to face some hostility in the Senate. Uh, His whole campaign was based, you know, largely on railing against this, quote, Washington cartel, which we would assume includes, you know, his colleagues in the Senate who work in Washington. Not that much changed, you know. They didn't like him before. He had already made all of these kind of really harsh comments against them when he stood on the floor there for his filibuster in 2013. So he didn't bring out any new attacks in the presidential election, but he definitely locked down those bad relationships by speaking about them so publicly. And he gave the media reason to concentrate on, you know, plenty of articles uh, under headlines that are some variation of why everybody hates Ted Cruz. Uh, that became kind of a, a big feature in the election. So he he's probably going to get a cold reception in the Senate, but it is not anything that he is not accustomed to at this point. I think a lot of people assumed that the Republican race was heading toward a contested convention. Uh, and then, of course, we had Kasich and Cruz drop out this past week. Uh, on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders is essentially mathematically eliminated from, you know, even if he wins the rest of the races, He's still not going to have enough superdelegates to overcome Hillary Clinton. Uh, My question for you is, how do you see the Democratic race shaping out? Do you think Sanders has potential to actually steal some of these superdelegates from Hillary Clinton? And if not, do you see him maybe exploring a third-party run for presidency? I don't think Sanders has much shot um, with the superdelegates. I can't imagine that he would try a third-party run. Um, You know, his campaign already had actually tremendous success compared with the expectations um, that were put before them when this race started. And the problem is going to fall largely in the Clinton campaign as she gets closer to to victory, uh, outright victory, in bringing the Sanders supporters over to her side. because very much like the Republican primary election, so has the Democratic primary cycle been extremely divisive, with the candidates turning much harsher rhetoric towards each other uh, than what is typical for primary elections. So, you know, Sanders supporters will not easily just walk over to the Clinton camp. Um, They think of her as being a, you know, Wall Street insider, some... Washington aristocracy, and this is the way that she's been portrayed by lots of her opponents who are also in the Democratic camp. Um, That's going to be a challenge, and it's going to be interesting to watch with what kind of rhetoric Sanders bows out of the race uh, and to what extent he encourages his supporters to go and support their Democratic nominee. Um, Not to say a third-party run is out of the question, but I think it's highly unlikely. I think it's interesting, given how divisive this has been. Is that sort of the new normal for American politics, or is this a one-off, sort of an outlier in terms of what we can expect in primaries in the future? You know, it's hard to say, um, looking years into the future. And and I think before looking to the future, um, us here in the media following politics are going to have to look back and ask, where did this come from, you know? It it has a lot to do, I think, with several movements that preceded this election, mostly the Tea Party rise in, you know, 2009, 2010, and then Occupy Wall Street uh, shortly thereafter. Both of these things brought 
to the public attention what have been main themes of both sides of the election, whether on the Republican side, you know, the Washington establishment and the, you know, fake conservatives and the Republican Party, all these claims have continued to be made. And, and Ted Cruz was actually the original in in the Republican race. If you recall, he was the first to announce his candidacy. Back then, his whole platform of railing against, you know, the party establishment was quite novel and a little bit shocking, but um, turned out to be quite ahead of his time because that, that became what, it, what everyone wanted to hear. And, it, you know, Donald Trump built his platform, I think, largely based on what Cruz had to say. Um, and, and Cruz does come from a Tea Party base of support. If you look to the Democratic side, it's not hard to see echoes or hear echoes of Occupy Wall Street in uh, what Bernie Sanders has to say about income inequality and regulation there and uh, putting you know, public funds to better use or to something that would be perceived as more beneficial to the public. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see what happens in these next years, how people respond to this election to see what kind of movements crop up ahead of 2020. Um, I don't expect it would be as dramatic a cycle as this one, although, you know, four years from now, who knows, anything is game. Most, but not all polls, assuming that Hillary's the nominee, have her leading Donald Trump. Despite his polarizing candidacy, do you see any chance that he could actually beat Hillary in November? Oh, heck yeah, there's definitely a chance. I mean, Keep in mind what people said about him when he uh, entered this race. Everyone thought it was gonna. It had maybe a week or two in it before he just crashed and burned. And man, he just plowed through. You know, almost like invulnerable to win the nomination. Now it's still very early on. You know, we got about six months till the election. Most of those polls have an extremely small sample size. You know, they'll they'll ask a couple of hundred people and then make projections for, you know, a hundred million American voters. So much is going to happen between now and the election. Many things are possible. Either candidate could have a, a crash and burn moment. Um, but I think they are going to be somewhat equal contenders going head to head. Donald Trump is going to build a much more credible campaign organization, I think, uh, going on from this point. He just hired a, a finance chair who, I don't recall the guy's name, but he was came from Goldman Sachs, kind of a Wall Street insider. And of course, Trump has connections with these people. He's, of course, very well connected in, in the world of high finance. Uh, he's going to start bringing these people on. They're going to get serious. They're going to build a more shrewd organization. He's not going to be able to self-finance. He's going to have to go looking for outside funds, which means he's going to have to start promising favors to the people who fund him, uh, which means he's going to build more of a powerful alliance, um, which the Clinton campaign already has. Um, these will be two formidable campaign organizations to go head to head, and it's going to be real interesting to watch. Now, for me, Dylan, I, you know, I, I'm not a Trump supporter. I also don't like Hillary Clinton. What do I do in November? There are probably thousands and thousands of people like you asking that very same question. Um, no good answer at this point. The choices that people are going to be presented with probably will be widely dissatisfying, and especially if you're a Republican and you don't like Donald Trump and you don't like Hillary Clinton. Not many options left. You know, <laughs> what's going on now, there is a group of Republicans um, meeting they met actually Thursday night, and we should be getting an update sometime early today about how to proceed with the Never Trump movement within the Republican Party. Uh, what many you know Republican insiders who I've been speaking with have suggested is actually the emergence of a new movement that kind of leaves the title of Republican to this new populist Trump party uh, and gravitates to identify more with being conservative. You know, they say we're conservative before we're Republican. They could start some semblance of a conservative party, you know, because they're, they're seriously mulling, propping up a third-party candidate to challenge Donald Trump. Then, again, of course, that would be largely the downfall of the Republican Party because 
Trump could not win, we assume, um, if there were an alternative viable conservative candidate to pull, you know, the moderate Republicans out of his base. At this point, I would anticipate that people, as you described, who are not a big fan of either of the candidates will probably stay home um, in November, which is unfortunately going to leave the choice up to, you know, the enthusiasts on both sides. Yeah, it's going to be very fascinating to see how everything transpires over the next five to six months and to see uh, especially how divisive these two are when it comes to uh, running against each other. I'm very fascinated to see a Trump uh, versus Clinton debate and just to see the, the campaigns and how it takes off. But uh, Dylan, we really appreciate your time joining us on the podcast this week. And for those that are interested in following your work, whether it be online or on social media, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Dylan Bedore, and I put my work up there. You can also find me on Facebook at Dylan Bedore, and that's a great inlet to see everything that I do. Dylan, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Following the tough NBA season for the Houston Rockets, there was plenty of optimism this spring in Houston as the Astros were tabbed as one of American League favorites heading into the 2016 season. And while the season is still young, the Astros find themselves in last place in the AL West and seven and a half games behind the Seattle Mariners. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew to discuss the Strohs is Jake Kaplan, the Astros beat reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, Jake, thanks for joining us this week. And to get things started, what will it take for this club to turn things around and finally reach its potential this season? Well, it's going to take a lot of things. And I think most prominently, they're going to have to pitch better. Um, after uh, Thursday's games, their uh, pitching staff's 4.83 ERA was the worst in the American League. Um, and, and they've had a lot of traffic on the bases, a lot of walks, a lot of hits. Um, and, and, I mean, they haven't hit great throughout the lineup either, but the pitching has been the, the bigger bigger issue. Um, and, and, you know, they, they definitely have missed uh, Lance McCullers, who should be back somewhat soon. Uh, and that will be a big boost, and, and maybe that helps them kind of get into a groove. But uh, ultimately it's the pitching that's uh, – been the biggest uh, problem uh, through the first uh, 30 or so games. According to an article you wrote on uh, HoustonChronicle.com, Keichel said he was putting too much pressure on himself. And I wonder, is that sort of endemic to the whole team? Is, is all the preseason hype um, kind of leading a lot of guys to try too hard and try to do too much? It might be in, in some guys' instances. Uh, maybe like a, a Carlos Gomez, uh, just judging from the way he's made out on the bases. Uh, being over aggressive, trying to do too much. Uh, maybe he's putting too much pressure on himself. Um, you know, uh, and Keichel, yeah, Keichel admitted he's, he's been putting too much pressure on himself, and he's trying to relieve that problem uh, as he entered entered his uh, Saturday start against the Mariners. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's an excuse when Sports Illustrated picks you to win the World Series for for you to be the you know, the worst team in the division through 30 games. But, um, you know, I, don't, I, I think there, there was probably a little bit of pressure that some of the more notable guys have put on themselves that isn't necessarily needed. Yeah, and speaking of the, the, you know, the Astros rotation, it seems like the bullpen hasn't been consistent either. I mean, outside of Thursday night with uh, Gregerson giving up three runs in the ninth inning, he's performed well. Will Harris has performed well. But uh, a guy that I look at is Ken Giles. He was supposed to be kind of that, uh, you know, that stopgap compete for that closer spot in the Astros bullpen. He struggled this season. What is up with him? Is it is it just mechanics? Is it is it just a mental thing right now? Is that something that can be corrected, especially with the Astros giving up, uh, you know, a high-value prospect in Vince Velasquez? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that be corrected. I mean, people forget he's only 25 years old still. Uh, he's, this is only his second full season in the majors, so he's still, you know, figuring out the best way to to get through a full season with with his stuff at his best throughout the six months. Um, it, I think I think a lot of it's confidence uh, at this point after uh, some struggles in his first few outings with the Astros, and, and he just for most of his outings uh, he just doesn't seem to be throwing his fastball with confidence, which is you know, it's a it's a great fastball. Uh, you know, mid to high 90s in, in Philadelphia, it would it would touch 100, uh, especially when he was a rookie in 2014. So uh, he hasn't been throwing it with confidence. Um, there's been a little bit of mechanics there. Uh, guys have been, are able to see his fastball longer than they were uh, in past years, which which uh, has led him to get hurt on that pitch. Um, you know. Also, in the long run, I think he'll be okay, but he's definitely working through some stuff, and the Astros are going to 
they need to continue to pitch him in, in lower leverage uh, situations until he figures it out. The guy that you mentioned just a few minutes ago is Lance McCullers. He's battled injuries uh, this season. You know, uh, he's he's gone through extended spring training. He's doing his rehab starts. When can the Astros expect him up in the big leagues and contributing to that rotation? I think the earliest he will be back uh, will be the next road trip. Um, he could be back, I should say. Um, will be their next road trip when they go to Boston for four games in Chicago for three games to play the White Sox. Um, he, he, he was set to throw um, five or so innings in a, in a, a triple-A game on Saturday. Um, and presuming he comes out of that okay, he could either join the Astros after that um, or make one or two more uh, starts with triple-A or double-A. Um, given that it's five innings, I would probably tend to say he, he'd need two starts, but um, – uh, one after Saturday, but uh, we'll see how he comes out of Saturday, um, how he comes out of his bullpen session after that on, on Monday. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it looks like there's a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of that, uh, his return, and, and it could be pretty soon. Jose Altuve has had a phenomenal season. Not only is he the Astros' leadoff hitter, but he's the first American League player to hit six leadoff home runs before June since Brady Anderson. How much does it help boost the offense and create momentum for the Astros having that kind of pop at the top of the lineup? He's been one of the best players in baseball um, through, through 29 games of the Astros' season, and, and they haven't really taken advantage of that. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about where they would be if they didn't have him performing at this level. Um, right now that he's at, um, like you mentioned, uh, he's got six leadoff home runs already, which I think is more home runs than the, or as many home runs as the entire Atlanta Braves team has in any inning. <laughs> um, uh, you know, entering Friday, uh, so the baseball's, uh, leaders in, in wins above replacement, it go Jake Arrieta at 2.4 wins above replacement, Jose Altuve at 2.3. So, um, he's been incredible, uh, and you know they have to start taking advantage of, of his games where, he, like Thursdays, where he's going four for four with a home run and a double and two singles, um, and and you know or else they're in trouble because um, he's not going to hit like this through a whole season. So um, they definitely have to start taking advantage more of, of what he's done. You actually wrote about this on Cron.com, uh, and we, of course, recommend all the listeners go and follow your work there. You do a great job covering the team. But you quoted uh, A.J. Hinch as saying, I think it's been more than a gentle step forward for Altuve. And uh, it is they are wasting his potential somewhat, I think, at least so far through the season. But what's been the key to that major leap forward for Altuve? Well, Hinch was speaking specifically about Altuve's pitch selection and the pitches he's swinging at. And I talked to Jose before, yes, before Thursday's game about that also. And he said that's biggest improvement he, he feels he's made this year um you know according to, to baseball info solutions which tracks this kind of stuff uh he's swinging coming into thursday he was swinging at 22 percent of pitches outside of the strike zone um and when he won the batting title two years ago that that number was in the 36 percent range and last year was in the 35 percent range so that's a huge, huge difference. Um, he's just swinging at better pitches, swinging at pitches that he's able to drive into the outfield, into the gaps, and, and in this year, this year's case, over the fence, rather than, you know, hitting a chopper to third base that he thinks he, that he can beat out. But you know, uh, it's more efficient <laughs> the way he's doing it now, where he's just driving into the outfield, into the gaps, um, and that's been the big, big difference is, is um, pitch selection, and you know, he, he's. He's still maturing as a hitter. We forget because he's been in the big league so long. But he just turned 26 on, on Friday. So he's still a young player, and he's getting stronger. Uh, Carlos Correa said he's Altuve pound for pound uh, is the strongest player in the clubhouse. Um, so, you know, he, he's just still getting better and better. Yeah, you, you just mentioned Carlos Correa. You know, he had a hot start in that New York series to open up the season. Kind of slowed down a little bit, but he seems to be, uh, you know, kind of finding his groove a little bit more. Same with Springer. He seems to be seeing the ball a little bit better. Uh, Jason Castro, who struggled early uh, on, seems to be hitting the ball better as well. Are the Astros right now, are they starting to come around on offense? And how much does that confidence project throughout the rest of the team, you know, whether it be the pitching staff, the bullpen, and just the rest of the lineup? Yeah, I think they're starting to come around. Um, like you mentioned, Correa, he, he did have a home run Wednesday, which was first in 24 games. Um, and, and he was battling some, some uh, timing issues at the plate for a week or two um, recently. I think he's passed that for the most part. He seems to be uh, hitting the ball pretty well, a lot of doubles. So 
Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he starts to, you know, goes on a, on a power binge here pretty soon. Um, Springer has been quietly great um, offensively and defensively all season, um, which is what the Astros need. And again, they just got to take advantage of it. Um, Castro, as you mentioned, had a, a very slow start. He's starting to heat up. Um, they, they really haven't gotten anything out of the third base or, or center field spots uh, offensively. Um, Carlos Gomez has hit a little better recently, but um, you know, still those two positions they're getting among the worst production in baseball, and those are those are uh, big holes in the lineup. Uh, those are especially third base. That's a position that you're supposed to get power and RBIs out of, and. Luis Valbuena has yet to hit home run after hitting uh, 25 last year. Hey, you mentioned Valbuena at third base, and also Marwin Gonzalez hasn't had that much pop this year in the lineup. So I look toward the minor league system. I look at a guy maybe like Colin Moran who can contribute. You've also got some other young talent there, and uh, Alex Bregman and A.J. Reed. Also on the pitching side, you've got Musgrove, Martez, and Paulino. Do you see the Astros uh, you know, maybe making a call to the, the, you know, the farm system and bringing up one of these young, talented players to help contribute and maybe put a little spark behind this team? Yeah, I, I don't think they can go much longer, to be honest with you, with the way Luis Valbuena is hitting. Um, I, with, I don't think they can go much longer with the lack of production at third base. Um, you know, Colin Moran still probably needs to cut down on the strikeouts a little bit uh, in AAA, but he'd probably be the first one to look at uh, in terms of making his uh, debut. You know, he was advanced coming out of, uh, out of uh, college uh, a few years ago, and, and so he's, he's a little a bit of a more advanced hitter. Uh, he's not a power guy, so he's not, you know, going to come in and, and hit 25 home runs, but he'll hit for average, and, and that's kind of what they they need anything out of that uh, spot uh, right now with Rob Wayna, you know, uh, hitting as poorly as, as he is uh, entering the weekend. Um, you know, I think A.J. Reed's starting to heat up. I, I still don't think we'll see him for maybe a month or two, um, although if Tyler White continues to struggle, that could accelerate his timeline. Um the pitchers, I think Musgrove's ready for a new challenge. I think we should see him at AAA soon. Um, he's been great. I think his ERA through through five or six starts uh, is .39. So he's been great. Uh, That's Martez, impressive. Martez, Martez has struggled. Um, he's still only 20 years old in his first full season and or for the, his first uh, opening day in. in uh, first time opening a season in, in the Texas League at Double A, so you know he's walked too many guys, but but I think he, that's just a, a development thing with him. Hope he'll get there, and, and Paulino's been good there too um, behind Musgrove. So um, yeah, I think the first one to look at would be Moran, and then probably Reed. But but you know if if the pitching struggles, um, which it has improved, the rotation has gotten better. Um, but if it, if it does struggle, Musgrove could be a guy we see uh, before long. Prior to the year, the media predicted that Carlos Correa could be the youngest MVP this season in baseball. CBS Sports had a discussion this past week about Carlos Correa having a slow start this season. Despite his slow start to the season in the power department, do you still think he's one of the best younger players in the game? We forget because he was talked about as an MVP candidate entering the year that um, – it's still his first April and May as, as a big leaguer. Um, so he's still working through, you know, how to prolong his, his production over a full season. I think when we look back in, in September and October, his production will be, you know, probably best among shortstops in the baseball and among the, the AL leaders in most offensive categories. Um, you know, he's not going to hit four home runs over six weeks for, for a six-month month, uh, period. He's going to heat up and, and go on longer power binges uh, at any point. And he's, he's a dangerous hitter, and I think, uh, you know, it's kind of just a slow start for him. And it's and it, we say slow start, he's still producing. Uh, his, his OPS is still, I think, around 800 or so. So, um, But I, I do think uh, when we look back at the end of the season, uh, We'll forget about uh, any kind of slow start he may have had in the power department. So I just want to welcome you. You're a recent transplant to Houston. And, uh, clearly, you know your stuff. You've obviously jumped in with both feet here. But, uh, you know, obviously before the season, a lot of preseason hype. People saying, you know, a World Series, Sports Illustrated covered, so forth. Uh, it seems like the excitement may have died off a little bit. What's your impression of the Houston fan base, you know, attending these games, kind of getting to know this city? Uh, is Houston a legitimate baseball town? Is there some room to grow there for us? There's definitely room to grow. Um 
You know, that atmosphere opening night, the home opener, when uh, Colin McHugh shut down the, the Royals, uh, that was electric. Um, that was that was fun to be, you know, be inside a, a fun ballpark to be inside of and a fun place to watch a game. And not to say it hasn't been since then, but, you know, ever since that night, it's dropped off every night, it seems like. Um, and, and there's a lot of a lot of empty seats in, in Minute Maid Park. But, um, you know, I, I think they are good baseball fans here. Um, you know, I know school's still in session and, and all that. But um, we'll see if they start to play better. Maybe Maybe more people will – but um, yeah, I'm still kind of learning the, the fan base here and, and how things operate. So you guys could probably tell me more about that than, than I than I know currently. Yeah, as a lifelong Astros fan, it's something that I wish that we had is uh, better fan attendance. But uh, the use and fans of fan base is very fickle. So uh, you know, hopefully they can turn it around, and uh, I guess the fans will jump back on the bandwagon. But uh, Jake, we definitely appreciate you for uh, joining us on the podcast this week. And I guess you know, Houston did actually get something good with the Giles deal. Uh, you coming to uh, Houston from Philly, but uh, for those that are interested in following your work online, uh, what is the best way that they can, you know, read your work or follow you on social media? I'd say the best way is, is HoustonChronicle.com, uh, Cron.com slash Astros, or on Twitter at at Jake M. Kaplan. Definitely go follow Jake on social media. He provides great content throughout the games. Uh, Definitely worth following on Twitter if you are active on that social media platform. But, uh, Jake, we definitely appreciate the time this week, and uh, best of luck covering the team the rest of the season. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me on. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. A few weeks ago on the podcast, we briefly discussed the floods that have impacted the greater Houston area. One organization that has been instrumental in helping Houstonians through this challenging time is Team Rubicon, which unites the skills and experiences of military veterans with first responders to rapidly deploy emergency response teams. On April 23rd, Team Rubicon launched Operation Moonshot in response to Houston area flooding. And joining us now on the podcast is the incident commander for the operation, Jim Bordell, who also spent more than 30 years with the U.S. Coast Guard. Jim, thanks for taking the time to join us this week. Yeah, thanks for having us on board. For those that aren't familiar with Team Rubicon and the work that your organization does, can you give us a brief overview of what the nonprofit does during a response and what specifically your role is with Operation Moonshot as the incident commander? Team Rubicon is a veteran-based volunteer uh, relief organization. And when we get a call and we find there's a disaster affecting the area community, uh, we want to get in there and help. And we do that through other uh, volunteer agencies and also through, like, the emergency management agencies of the municipality or city. Um, and so we send a team out to see what kind of damage it is, and we see what we can help. We lift our capabilities, like, you know, mucking out and uh, moving debris from people's homes and basically trying to get there to get them back on their feet again as quick as we can. And while we're doing that, we're healing ourselves because there's a second peer to that. So I'm curious, you know, as I read through the literature and so forth, obviously it's a, it's a primarily centered around veterans and veterans helping and service and things like that. I just wonder, it seems to me like there's a really good fit between the service-oriented mission and the idea of veterans that are returning home. What makes that such a good fit? So it's not only veterans, it's first responders and um, civilians also, but the, the part that we all get is... Um, Comradeship. So we're in the service, or in a in a firehouse, for instance, or bivouacked out in the in the field. We have a certain bond, and we're living together, we're sleeping together, and working together. And that same feeling is, we get that when we come to a deployment for like like Operation Moonshot. And specifically with Operation Moonshot, when you arrived on scene in Houston, what was your initial impression of the damage, and how have you seen you know the community kind of rally around and volunteer and help these flood victims? Well, the initial uh, scope of damage uh, looks like it's been long going. I mean, over a period of floods past year, uh, this particular flood incident, um, floods rose got into their homes, uh, destroyed their carpet and their drywall and all their furniture. We had to get that out of there. Um, and I've seen other communities, other uh, organizations help out. Um, but I definitely could speak about Team Rubicon's response. We're sending teams out, up to nine different teams and trucks. They're going out in four-by-fours with, loaded with tools, and they're going to these houses. After we uh, assess them, we, we talk to the owners, and they say, yep, come on in. We want your help. And we're spending, you know, sometimes two, three days there, um, getting them back on our feet. And when we leave it, we call it, um, we want it clean to like our TR standard. It means we got everything out and we help the homeowner 
And the big payoff on that is whenever the homeowner shakes our hand and says thank you or they give us a hug. You know, that's our payoff right there. And so what has been the scope of the operations here in Houston so far? Yeah, we've, we've had uh, over 130 personnel report through these, over these last two and a half weeks. Um, ours, I can't tell you that right off the bat. I didn't look at the metrics, but uh, it's up there. So 138 times we're putting in, you know, a good eight, ten-hour days the whole time. And how is it organized in terms of making sure that you guys are being as you know efficient as possible? You know, I read some things about how you're adhering to uh, certain standards that are set by uh, you know relief organizations and so forth. I'm just curious how you, you take all that manpower and, and make sure that it's being used in the most effective way possible. For disaster management, we are subscribed to the incident command system with like a methodical way to organize uh, anything. In this in this case, we're organizing ourselves to respond against uh, a disaster. So we have like uh, overhead staff, and we have people throughout like a chain of command. And of course, military first responders, we understand like a chain of command. So hey, we're coming in from all over the country, particularly on this operation. Um, but we all get it. We came here. We know what the, what the deal is. And we understand orders and how it has to go. And but we work as volunteers to get it done. Now you guys not only just help out in Houston, but all, all over the world whenever there's a disaster. How does it work in terms of uh, people volunteering, and how does Team Rubicon? Uh, kind of decide on which incident they should respond to, and how does it work in terms of building a team to uh, deploy for these different incidents? So if you see our logo, it's like a cross, uh, cross, and we shoot us light up in the sky when they need us, and we respond. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but it, it feels that way because um, we we try to reach out ahead of time, you know, during the blue sky when there's no disaster, and we're trying we're making contacts with emergency managers different network partners and we're you know trust the flesh shaking hands and then when something happens and we have that connection we come into that community that's the best way i could say it happens here at the weekly brew podcast we are you know uh, we would say that we're almost a sports-based podcast and we've discussed the astros here a little bit and uh once you know the flood started happening uh, on april 22nd colby rasmus who was an outfielder for the astros uh, said that for each home run that he hits this season, he's going to donate $1,000 to Team Rubicon, uh, you know, and help out the organization. Now, I know that not everybody can, uh, you know, donate $1,000 for every single home run they hit. But for people that are looking to get involved, whether it be donation, coming out and volunteering, donating supplies, what is the best way for uh, civilians, I guess, to help out? Well, in the, in the Houston area, there's a website, Volunteer Houston. So if you're unaffiliated, with any organization, that's the best way to go. If you find out how you can donate um, time, money, uh, effects, whatever it takes, and that's a good source of information. Um, and you're speaking about uh, Hitters for Heroes. Hey, there was like 44 Team Rubicon folks at the game last night. How was that experience, just being there, being able to step away from uh, you know the volunteer work and just enjoy a little bit of downtime in the evening? It was just what we needed. It was a good break, and uh, it was welcomed by everybody. And I'm going to tell you what, the set of the stands, we owned it. <laughs> well, I will say this, that uh, on nights that Team Rubicon goes to Astros baseball games, the Astros actually uh, go on two-game winning streaks. So maybe we need to get you guys out to more games. But, uh, uh, Jim, we definitely appreciate your time and joining us this week on the podcast. And, uh, again, if, if you could just give our listeners one more time the best way that they can find out more information on Team Rubicon. Hey, the best way to get a hold of Team Rubicon and find out who we are is uh, teamrubiconusa.org. I look at our website, we've got a really cool layout, and you can find all kinds of information on what we do, who we are, and where we are. Definitely go check out that website. It's teamrubiconusa.org. And uh, Jim, we appreciate all the work you're doing here in Houston with Operation Moonshot, and uh, thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. Thanks, everybody. Closing time. That was a fun episode. I uh, definitely enjoyed all of our guests today, uh, especially Jim Bordell uh, from joining us from Team Rubicon. Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, it, we know we know that most of our listeners are coming from the Houston area. So most of you have either been impacted by floods or know somebody that has been impacted by floods. And I thought he did a great job discussing Team Rubicon and their mission, uh, Operation Moonshot, here in Houston. So I would encourage you to go check out their website, teamrubiconusa.org, to find out how you can get involved. Also, thanks to Dylan Bedore and Jake Kaplan from the Houston Chronicle for coming on to talk both politics and the Astros respectively. But I'm curious, 
What did y'all think of today's episode? As we've talked about off air, a lot of other nonprofit organizations uh, do not make good use of their funds or not good investments if you're looking to help people give relief. So there's a great feeling that comes with giving to donating to a worthy cause, but a lot of times that money is misspent. So Team Rubicon, uh, a great effort, and we totally support what they're doing. And obviously you should check them out online as well and see uh, if you'd like to contribute to the relief fund here in Houston. It's nice to know the money will be helping people close to you and helping keep uh, the town that you love. I guess it's really more of a city that you love. Um, on the right track. So that was a great piece from a great organization. And then I obviously enjoyed Dylan Badur. I think killed it. Um, it's also a fun name to say, Badur, Dylan Badur. It really, I have a very boring name. And so I love people with interesting names. Like Dolores Lozano, also an interesting name. So Yeah. So when I hear Badur, for some reason, I think hockey and I think goalkeeper. I don't know. We don't have hockey here, but to me, Badur sounds like he should be playing for like the Dallas Stars. Ah, we should tell him that. We'll get him back on and we'll tell him that. But uh, And then Jay Kaplan obviously does a great job as well. He's new here to Houston, but uh, jumped right in and has been killing it doing Astros coverage. And I got to say, you know, congratulations to our guests for being so great, but also congratulations to us. We've been doing a great job of getting guests, and I think that that should not be overlooked as well. So really, some of the thanks due to our guests, much of the thanks due to us for the show that we put on every week. Yeah, and it wouldn't be a, a podcast without Kevin uh, patting himself on the back. So, uh, Kevin, uh, go ahead and pat yourself on the back real quick. But, uh, uh, Jeremy Dolores, what did y'all think of the episode? Special shout-out to Dylan Bedour. Really enjoyed that interview. Um, really enjoyed his thoughtful analysis on this total cluster of an election. The whole thing is still so surreal to me. And he uh, kind of helped bring it back down for me. Um, of course, you know this whole thing has just been a mess. But, anyways, really enjoyed the podcast. Really enjoyed um, just owning all of you with the hipster band Derby Horse uh, thing we did earlier, so I'm feeling pretty good after bowling. If we're not mistaken, Dolores found uh, a boyfriend this week. I did. That's right. Oh, Orbit. Yes, and it it is honestly, you two are a gorgeous couple. He's Thank you a so little much. bit bigger than you. More cushion for the pushing. Exactly right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're very open minded. We can appreciate that. And you were all over. <laughs> no, I thought you were serious. That all was over. a joke. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Orbit's gonna retweet that. <laughs> Orbit is Bay, right, Dolores? Orbit is Bay. I have a t-shirt that says that. He yes. gave it to me personally. Now, did he approach you with moon pies, or how did this whole courtship begin? Um, well, it was kind of a sign language uh, love that happened. He was just, like, forming hearts around me, and he asked me, if he, like, grabbed my hand to see if I had a wedding ring, and I didn't. <laughs> so he was like, hey, you and me? And I was like, sure. That, so ever since then, we've been in love. That's inspiring. Now, is it Facebook official yet? Not yet. I need to make sure that there's no other Orbit Bays that he has. I definitely need to check his phone. Yeah. yeah. So, Orbit, if you're listening, uh, go ahead and get off of uh, Alien People Meet or Tinder. I think uh, Dolores and Orbit are going to be Facebook officials soon or Twitter officials soon. So they need to get on that. Let me throw this out as well. Um, we have so many listeners, so many listeners, and I only have like 473 followers on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken. And I got to say that with such a popular podcast and so few Twitter followers, I kind of look like so you guys should really go follow me on Twitter at kmichaelcook is the best way to do that. I would love to have you guys be followers there. Maybe it's just people look at your content and realize that it's not interesting. I don't care. Don't follow me for the content. Follow me because I need the followers. I think this episode was a self-promotion for Kevin this week. Why do you think I'm on a podcast? It's a means to an end for Kevin. His emotional state depends on Twitter followers and iTunes reviews. It's an empty and barren wasteland inside of me, so I do all these things to... To make myself feel better. We definitely had a fun episode today, and you can follow all of our work on our social media channels. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And just for Kevin, you can also follow him at K Michael Cook on Twitter. Uh, it's going to be a lot of tweeting about high school softball, so if you're into that kind of thing. I don't tweet about high school softball that much. Just on Friday nights. One tweet a week about high school softball. And you know what? I watched a pitcher pitch three games in two days and hit a three RBI home run in one game, and then in the next game, a solo home run. That was one of the more incredible, Ashley Kreisel, I'll actually give her a shout out, Maid Creek High School, one of the more amazing performances I've ever seen in a high school sporting event over the course of two days. Definitely go follow us on our social media platforms. Also, you can go to weeklybrewcast.com and you can follow all of our work there. Uh, we post content there each Monday morning. Uh, and lastly, we want you to go to iTunes. And as Kevin mentioned at the top of the show, if you go to We Desserts and you leave an iTunes review in front of Penny or Jen, you get a free bit good. So why not do that? And uh, Kevin, 
How are you feeling this week? Well, not feeling great, but I am excited about this new promotion. So we hadn't stated it this episode. We Desserts is O-U-I Desserts. We is, uh, I believe, a French word, if I'm not mistaken. I took eight years of French. I'm pretty confident that we is a French word. And um, I think that if you, I basically showed Penny how to do it. So it's a little confusing. We understand on the phone, it's not as easy as on the desktop to leave a review. And uh, so Penny will walk you through the process of leaving a review and as a reward, uh, give you a free cookie or macaroon uh, for your efforts. So definitely drop by We Desserts. Buy some more stuff you get 10% off, but also if you leave a review for us, uh, we will read it on the air as we always do. And uh, then you'll get a free cookie or macaroon as well. And they are the best cookies and macaroons in the city without question, maybe in the world. I think it's very important that you did clarify the spelling of we, because believe it or not, I actually had somebody approach me today telling me how important that was because they kept on searching we desserts, W-E desserts on Google Maps and couldn't find it. So they were asking us, they were asking me if the bakery actually existed. (laughs) No, we have made up a sponsor and plugged them relentlessly for three months. It's a great place to go. Uh, Definitely one of the more enjoyable spots in Houston. But we definitely had a fun episode this week. And again, thanks to Jim Bordell, Dylan Bedore, and Jake Kaplan for joining us on episode 42 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. But for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Dolores Lozano, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. Guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 